Hey everyone, this is Sellers. And this is Stormy. And, and this, this is Unforgotten. Unforgotten. Where each episode will highlight unsolved missing, murdered, and suspicious death cases in Alabama in order to raise awareness and hopefully obtain some answers for victims and their families. Please remember that any individual referenced in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law, and any opinions or views expressed in the podcast are solely those of participants. Listener discretion is advised, as some of the content discussed in the podcast may contain violence or graphic descriptions and may not be suitable for all audiences. Be sure to subscribe to our Patreon channel for early access to unforgotten episodes and bonus content. Your subscription will help support the efforts of ACCA in assisting families in raising awareness for Alabama cold cases. Hey guys, and welcome back. How's your week going, Stormy? It's going all right. It's been busy. You know, life kind of gets you. (laughs) How about you? Same. Yeah. Super busy. I I have a question for you before we get started. Oh, hit me. What do you call an alligator in a vest? <laughs> what? An investigator. <laughs> ah! <laughs> That's great. I, I beat you to the joke today. <laughs> oh, you did. That's a good one. I liked it. So, as you know, we obviously talk a lot about unsolved cases, but once in a while we like to be able to highlight the success stories too. Last month, Georgia officials made a pretty big announcement in the 47-year-old missing person case of 22-year-old Kyle Klinkscales when they were able to positively identify his skeletal remains. I don't know if you saw that wow. in the news sellers, but That's we a long time. Yeah, I think we had that. We did. I think we posted on our page, didn't we? Yeah, I think when the article came out. Yeah, so you guys can find that article. Um, For those who aren't familiar, Kyle was a sophomore at Auburn University and working part-time at a bar in LaGrange, Georgia, which is just across the border, about 45 minutes away. On the night of January 27th in 1976, Kyle hopped in his white 1974 Pinto roundabout and started the drive from LaGrange to Auburn. For years, Louise and John Clinkscales, Kyle's parents, searched relentlessly for any sign of their son, never giving hope that they would one day be reunited. Martha Morrison, Louise's sister, told the New York Times that the couple left a note and a spare key for Kyle anytime they had to leave the house. That's There's a really... Sad. It is, I know. Um, you know, these, I, in reading the article, these guys, like, went all out find, to try to find their son. And they became kind of advocates for others that went missing, too. They did a lot of, a lot of searching in a lot of different places and distributed all kinds of stuff. It was really great. Um, and there will be a link to the article in the description, so you guys can read it for yourself. It's a great article on this. In December of 2021, a resident of Cassetta, Alabama, 30 miles or so southwest of LaGrange, driving down County Road 38, noticed a rusted vehicle sticking out of a creek bed and called the authorities. That's when the you inve- see every day. Yeah, no, it's not. <laughs> when the investigators arrived, they ran the VIN number and plates and confirmed the car was actually Kyle's. 
they also discovered skeletal remains along with Kyle's wallet and driver's license inside the car. Man. Yeah, it's sad that that, I mean, I can't even imagine coming upon that, can you? Mm-mm. It's not clear whether the area was searched to begin with, but officials had stated it was likely not searched since it wouldn't have been the main route that Kyle would have taken, though it could have been an alternate route. Investigators did believe foul play may have been involved, and in 2005, a man by the name of Jimmy Earl Jones and somebody named Gene Johnson were arrested by the Troop County uh, Sheriff's Office for hindering the investigation, but neither were charged for murder. Um, And just for you guys to know geography here, uh, Troop County is where uh, LaGrange is located over in Georgia. Unfortunately, as we've talked about many times already on the podcast, Kyle's parents had passed away before Kyle or his car were actually located. That's really disappointing because they had put so much work into looking for him and had been so hopeful mm-hmm. that he would be coming home that they were leaving notes and keys to let him know where they were at. I know, it's just crazy. I thought, you know, what, I mean, literally the hope like you were talking about, but I was just thinking the fortitude, I don't know if they had to convince themselves that, you know, this was going to happen, you know, over time when you lose somebody and obviously I haven't but when you've lost somebody you know that's gone missing it's so easy to let that hope die that you know you get frustrated over time or you know that sort of thing we've talked to many people who are starting to lose hope and these guys never seem to and it's pretty amazing I really wish they could have been here to see that to to see him get to come home yeah I mean they and he did still could- have family I think right Yes, the um, sister of Kyle's mother, so Martha, his aunt, uh, that I mentioned earlier, she at least was here to see Kyle be brought home and put to rest. Um, you know, as unfortunate as it was that his parents couldn't be there, we're happy to know that at least some family could be there with him. And we're happy that there's somewhat of a resolution to knowing where he was now. We've been going through the counties alphabetically, but Kyle's case kind of correlated with another case that we were looking at. And we hadn't particularly planned on doing this case right at this point, but it just keeps kind of drawing us back to it. Well, there was another thing to us finding this case. It may have actually been fate as it was accidentally labeled as in the county of Dallas. And so we just happened upon this in that way and realized it was actually in a different county. So I think that started us on our little path and got us hooked right in. Yeah, I don't even know where we got Dallas County from. I have no idea. I I think it was, it very well could have just been like in our list, a cut and paste issue maybe. I have no idea, but I guess it, it was a good thing in some ways because it led us to doing this. Right. And this case has actually been unsolved for over 46 years now. So in August of last year, Martha Fikes contacted us about her father's unsolved case. Martha was only three or four years old when her father, Pete, was last seen. She stated she's heard plenty of stories over the years about what happened to her father, but she was hoping sharing his story would lead to some additional information. 
It took a little bit of digging, but we were able to find at least a few things that were shared in the media at the time of his disappearance. And we're hoping that maybe we'll be able to get some additional information to add on to this later. I mean, honestly, you know, she was so young when this all happened. And I could understand what she was kind of feeling, I think, from her messages to us that she felt like she just didn't know anything about what happened other than some stories that she had heard and that she wished she had known a little bit more. And I can completely understand that. So 41-year-old William Charles Pete Fikes lived near Sipsey in Walker County. On March 3, 1960, Pete graduated from the Highway Patrol School of the Alabama Police Academy and was assigned to Pickens County as an Alabama conservation agent. He also worked as a radio operator for the state troopers in Decatur. On November 28, 1976, Pete spent the night at his grandmother's home in Jasper. Around 9.30 a.m. the following morning, November 29th, he left her home in his father's 1972 Plymouth Valiant and headed back to his home in Burroughs Crossing, which was just eight miles away. And then Burroughs Crossing is just outside of Sipsy, is that right? It's eight miles away from Jasper, and Sipsy's in that same area. This was the last time his family saw him. His parents went by his home later that afternoon and discovered that he wasn't there, and fearing that he may have been in an automobile accident due to the icy roads, his father, William F. Fikes, drove up and down Walker County roads looking for any sign of Pete for the next three days. When William's searches continued to turn up empty, he reported Pete missing to the Jasper Police Department and the Walker County Sheriff's Office. Wow. Another case of where you you can imagine the distress of not knowing. You just talked to him recently and you just happen to go by his house and he's not there and doesn't answer for three days. And And there aren't a whole lot of articles on Pete's disappearance that we've been able to find at this point. I mean, at 46 years old, a lot of newspapers from that time aren't around anymore. Right. You know, it's possible they're not in the archives. So we went through several databases looking for things to kind of fill in the gaps that we had. But you would think with him being a conservation agent and having graduated from the highway patrol school, that law enforcement probably would have been a little more on top of searching for him. You would think so, because he really, you know, he, for all intents and purposes, he was an officer. Right. Um, So that was kind of my thinking anyway. It looks like months went by with very little information. Then on February 24th, 1977, Jasper PD Major George Guthrie contacted William and told him the car had been found in Jefferson County. Major Guthrie had been searching vehicle transfer records in Jefferson County when he discovered a bill of sale for the Fikes Plymouth Valiant. The bill of sale appeared to be signed by Pete and dated November 30th, 1976 just one day after he was last seen. Well, that's not suspicious at all. Not at all. Authorities arrested three men. James Arthur Gregg was one of those three men, and he was identified as having forged Pete's signature on the bill of sale when he sold the car to a man who lived in Cahaba Heights for $200. That doesn't sound like a lot of money. No, I guess if you think it's 1976, maybe it's... 
reasonable for a used old car. I don't know. Maybe back. Well, how long had they had? I looked up a Plymouth Valiant and they looked like nice cars. Were they? I mean, it looked nice to me anyway. Yeah. That does seem like not very much money then. (laughs) Yeah. Especially whenever, um, and we'll talk about it more, but William had to post a $1,500 bond just to have the car returned. So if it was now that seems like a lot of money, <laughs> I mean, for what it was, I know. Kind of so backwards. it's kind of like, OK, so which one of these is really kind of skewed? Yeah, but it was a different time. So it was also reported that there was dried blood found inside the car, which makes you wonder who buys a car. <laughs> just going to say, my that gosh, has blood really? In it. Yeah. Does it do you not wow. look at that and think? Well, that's weird. I probably shouldn't buy this. Yeah. Or maybe I, I mean, should did call he not the cops. Even look at the car before he bought it. <laughs> you know, did he just like, oh, I have his car to sell. Okay. I'll, you know what I mean? Looks nice on the outside. I'll take it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I think even if I had noticed it and thought, I'm not even telling these guys I saw that because I was a little bit nervous about that. As soon as they left, I would be calling the police. Yeah. Me too, of course. And this is just one day later, so that's pretty fresh. Yeah. If that's the Uh, case. Well, I wonder how much it was, though. That's what I was about to say. It doesn't say how much it was. Um, So maybe they gave some excuse for why there was blood in the car. If it was just like a little smear or something, it could have been, you know, from a cut in his hand or something. And I'm just going to go ahead and say... Who even knows, really, if there was actually blood found in the car? Because there are things that we're going to get into that just don't make sense to me. Okay. So just kind of keep it in mind that that might not even be true. It's said it was. It was in the newspapers. So you kind of just have to take it for what it is. According to comments made by William to media outlets, Greg told investigators that Pete had been murdered by one of the other men and his body had been hidden, which seems likely if there was dry blood found in the car. Yeah. But they only identified the guy accused of forging the bill of sale, the James Arthur Greg. They didn't identify the other two men that were arrested, so no clue who those guys were. This gets weirder. <laughs> it does get weirder. Do we say that a lot? It, I think we say it, that a lot. <laughs> we do, and it just keeps getting weirder. Mm. Searches were conducted in the Walker County area, but none of those searches led to Pete or any additional evidence. And as the saying goes, no body, no crime. So none of the men that were arrested for forging and selling stolen property were charged with murder. They don't say who purchased the car either, so I don't think there were any charges for receiving. Isn't there a charge for buying and receiving stolen property? Uh, I think they do if they can prove that the person had knowledge, I guess. I mean, if they oh, just thought they were blood buying a in car, the car from somebody. Seems, yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. I'm going back to that. I guess not that somebody again, admitted to it. Yeah, not somebody admitted to assumption. it. Maybe there was enough blood. Yeah. I don't think the guy that had the car admitted to knowing that. I think that what he said was he just bought it from three guys. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, they didn't really elaborate any further. And okay. he identified the three guys, which is how they got Greg's name as... And, 
I don't even know how they figured out he was the one that forged it. I don't know if he admitted to doing that. I don't know. I honestly don't know how they... such a lack of information. I mean, I know it was a long time ago, but you would think there would be a little bit more than that if they, you know, they still had articles on who they arrested and what their theory was and all of that. You would think that there would have been a little bit more information out there. You would think so, because when... A lot of times, even when we look at these older articles or older cases, a lot of the local newspapers cover these. Mm-hmm. And so if you can find one article in one paper, the chances are you're going to find other articles and other papers. And that's just not here. There's not at all gaps yeah. between reporting. So I don't know if it just wasn't followed closely. I don't know if maybe it was at that time and maybe those just got lost along the way between the transition from paper to the online world. I don't know if I even need to say this, but we do know where this took place as well. So that's also, that. Yep, that's another thing to keep in mind. According to the media articles, William posted a 1500 bond just to have his car returned from the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office established a $5,000 reward fund, which was supplemented by an additional $1,000 from former Governor George Wallace. And on November 7th of 1977, Governor Wallace increased the amount from $1,000 to $9,000, bringing the total to $15,200. Unfortunately, even with the reward, it appears months went by with little movement. And why did Jefferson County still have this car? Well, that's kind of what I was wondering because I guess, I don't know. I guess I'm not really sure. That kind of is confusing, isn't it? It is confusing as to why Jefferson County, one, still had the car and why the William, Pete's dad, had to pay a bond to have the car returned. Why didn't the investigating agency have that car brought to their jurisdiction for forensic analysis? Right. So not only did it not go to the investigating agency, but it was released to the father. And what happened while it was in Jefferson County? I'm assuming it was kept. Well, you know what they say about assuming. (laughs) And sometimes we make a lot of assumptions that we probably shouldn't make. Hmm. And then something almost unbelievable happened. On September 14th, 1980, a man walking through an area near a Sipsy dump site discovered a skull. Sipsy's not far from where everything took place, from Burroughs Crossing and Jasper. Like, it's all right there, centered, not centered around each other, but they're all very close in proximity. And that's all, like, on the east side of Walker County, right? Yes. Sipsy is to the east of Jasper, and Burroughs Crossing is kind of situated northeast of Jasper. Oh, okay. So I don't know where the dump site was in Sipsy, but that would be something interesting to look at because it's almost out of the way. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know exactly where his grandmother lived in Jasper, so it's possible. That's going from the center, like what Google considers Jasper, like the middle of it. So if she lived kind of on the outskirts of Jasper, then maybe it would have been more likely that they would travel that route to get to Burroughs Crossroads. 
but that looks like it really would have been going out of the way. Mm-hmm. So I guess it really just depends on exactly where her house was. But that's something mm-hmm. that would be kind of interesting to know, actually looking at it on the looking at it on the map. On the map. Yep. Yeah. I really do hope we get some additional information on this because this just gets <laughs> wild to me. Just wild to me. Yeah. So that area, though, had been the subject of several searches previously, according to reports by law enforcement. So this man just walking through finds a skull in 1980, four years later, in the area that had already been searched. That's beyond me. Well, no, it's not beyond me, I guess. That's not even the worst of it. Right at two months later, on November 11th, 1980, officials announced the skull had been identified as belonging to Pete. But they knew yeah. that fast. Well, let me explain how they knew. It was reported that the state toxicologists were able to match the skull with x-rays Pete had previously received as the result of a car wreck. And it was further stated that the toxicologist believed that a blood sample found in one of the skull fractures would match the dried blood found in the car. So not that it did match, but that they believed it would match. In 1980, four years after he disappeared, there was a blood sample found in a skull that had been outside in the elements for four years. Um, okay. <laughs> I find that a little bit um, implausible. Um, I'm not yeah. sure that there would still be blood that. on a skull. And that. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, are they start trying to say it was like in it, like in the crevices? Like of it? in the crevices but, of the skull fracture that they found mm-hmm. blood. But how many remains have we heard about where they that's ever been discussed before? Yeah. That seems just so almost far-fetched. Right. I mean, now they have so much technology that they're starting to. But I mean, even just a couple of years ago, it was nearly impossible to do that. But why would, you know, they say teeth are like the titanium briefcase of DNA. Right. Like they yeah. just hold DNA for so long. So if there were teeth, why wouldn't they use the teeth to try to extract DNA? Was that not a thing yeah. in the 80s? Yeah, that's a great Maybe. question. Now, this is another thing that I'm not really sure about. How did they use these x-rays? Did they use these x-rays to say, oh, the shape matches? Or it? the article actually mentioned that they used the x-rays. I can't remember exactly how it was worded, but the x-rays were from fractures he'd received as a result of that car wreck. So are they trying to say that the fractures from the car wreck were still present and that they were able to match those up? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking if they took an x-ray, because they do that in autopsies, or at least when they do an autopsy, right, they do all of that. So maybe they just overlaid the two x-rays and they matched. I don't know. That's it. I'd I'd love to know <laughs> how they actually did this. 
It just seems, also, I mean, obviously they didn't go into all the detail in the newspaper or wherever, but yeah. And it, I think it stood out to me too about the fact that it was state toxicologists reviewing these x-rays and comparing them to the mm-hmm. skull. Yeah. Huh. That seems like not the, oh my gosh, I don't even know what I'm trying to say here. What would you call that? It's. It seems like the wrong mix of facts in this story. I mean, it seems like it's a toxicologist and a blood sample and x-rays and all these things. They're all pieces, but they're not the pieces that fit together with the way that they're telling it. And that doesn't seem like the professional that you would want to be examining Mm -hmm. bones. No, for sure not. You know, if you think about it, though, in some, especially if it's a smaller, I don't know what size Jasper would have been back then. And I'm assuming that's probably where it was. That, you know, maybe they were doing double duty as far as their responsibilities go. Well, this said state official, so I'm going to assume it went to the Department of Forensic Sciences. It doesn't say that, but that would be my assumption is that they would handle that. Yeah, all good questions. I mean, there's a lot of pieces that seem to be missing out of this that don't quite make the story kind of jive Those same officials also stated that the blood sample indicated that Pete was alive at the time he was hit on the head with the blunt instrument. How would they know that? That long, especially if the blood was in an old fracture. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. You would assume that he would be alive. Mm -hmm. But I guess because you don't have a whole, like, you don't have a body, then there's no Mm -hmm. way to, like, actually tell... I mean, they don't know how he died. Well, to me, it's the statement that's weird. Not really that it happened that way. Most people, if they were really beaten or something, then they could have passed away before they got the fracture on the head. But, you know, you would think that a person that's getting their car stolen or whatever happened here that got hit in the head, obviously they were alive. But it's the statement that they said. Officials stated that the blood sample indicated that he was alive. How do they well, know Well, it's that? almost like they needed a reason to justify saying there was blood found in the skull. Like they knew mm-hmm. that that was abnormal. So they needed to explain yeah. why that would even be possible. Just one more. Does that make really sense, odd. though? Yeah. Yeah, well, I get what you're saying, and I agree. It does seem like they're trying to um, provide extra facts to make their story sound more like it's reasonable. And not that it isn't a story, maybe. And it but, may, I mean, it it may be, be just one of those strange happenings where that is 100% what was reported in the news. I'm just thinking maybe what they really meant to say, but they didn't say it well, is that they matched his skull with the fractures, but they also found blood in a fracture, which was probably one of the new fractures from the actual incident. Again, just speculating, but it would make more sense that way to me. I mean, you know, blunt force trauma, blood on that injury forced into the skull, maybe. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. This It's all very odd. I mean, you think they would at least be more straightforward with it if that was the case. I'm not even sure that 
people reading the newspaper would even really need to know all this detail. And maybe that's another thing, too, is that it had been so far in between. If we hadn't been researching this and looking at it, having all the articles in front of us and being able to flip through them in order, people who hadn't been Mm -hmm. following the case may not have followed along with that. But it does say in that article, right, right there in black and white, he was last seen on November 29th, 1976, and the skull was found in 1980. So, I mean, the time frame's right there. After the discovery of the skull, Walker County DA Charles Baker told the Aniston Star that they had some, quote, very promising leads and that he expected the investigation to conclude within the next 60 days. So that's in 1980, but we don't hear anything over those next 60 days, or at least not that we found. On August 13th, 1982, Walker County Sheriff Jack Trotter announced that County Investigator Frank Cole and Leon Hampton of the Alabama Bureau of Investigation had arrested 24-year-old Perry Mixon on charges of robbery and murder in connection to Pete's death. That same article discussing the arrest of Perry Mixon also seems to clarify that the dried blood found in the car only matched Pete's type, not that it matched the DNA. So I'm not sure that they ever confirmed that the blood in the car was actually a DNA or genetic match to Pete, just that it was the same blood type. That article also indicated that the skull that was found at the Sipsy dump site was only a partial skull, and that after reviewing the medical records, officials were able to identify the upper portion of the skull matched Pete from those x-rays that we discussed earlier. There's no mention about that blood sample that was supposedly found in those fractures or what happened with matching that to the blood that was found in the car. And you remember they said they believed it would match, not that it did match, but that they believed it would match. And now we don't even know whether the blood in the car matched Pete, just that it matched his type. At the time of Mixon's arrest, he was an inmate at Staten Correctional Center in Elmore County. He was already in jail when they arrested him and charged him with robbery murder. In searching the newspaper archives, we found a Birmingham Post-Herald article from 1980 discussing several sentences imposed by Circuit Judge Charles Crowder under the Habitual Offender Act. The article stated, Crowder gave another man, Perry Lee Mixon, 22, the minimum 15-year sentence for a person with two prior felonies who is convicted under the Habitual Offender Act for a Class B felony. Mixon recently was found guilty by a jury for possession of a quantity of jewelry and other items which were stolen from a drugstore. The charge, second-degree theft, is a Class B felony. His record showed that he pled guilty on June 7, 1976, to a burglary receiving a two-year sentence and to a receiving and concealing stolen property charge for which he received a concurrent sentence for a year and a day. The second conviction, which put him under the act, was a second receiving and concealing stolen property charge to which he pleaded guilty on June 15, 1979, 
for which he was sentenced to a year and a day. Okay, I'm trying to do math here. (laughs) So he pleads guilty on June 7th, 1976, and receives a two-year sentence and then a year and a day for the second charge, but they're running concurrently. So if we assume that he served that time, he couldn't have been responsible for Pete's murder because he would have been in jail. Pete was last seen on November 29th, 1976. So two years would definitely not have been up. No, that's five months. Not, well, almost. Then not to mention, the car was located in Jefferson County in 1977. And that's when they arrested those three guys for the forged bill of sale. None of those charges were from 1977 when they found the car and arrested those other three guys. So where did Mixon come from? Right, because it would seem like he's not one of the original three. Otherwise, Hmm. he would have had his second charge in 77. So, yeah, I agree. I'm wondering if for some reason, if he didn't serve out that sentence, we don't know why he wouldn't. But if he didn't and he was out... Could he have been the one that bought the car? Or we don't, do we know the guy's name? We don't. The guy's name that we No, that they didn't the identify who bought yeah. the car. Because it says when they find the car, it says they arrested the three guys and brought them in. Hmm. But there was only the one that was identified. And none of those charges that we just read about reference the fact that they were related to Pete's disappearance. So you would think that if he had been considered a suspect in Pete's disappearance and subsequent murder, then when they're reading these charges under this Habitual Offender Act, because they're highlighting his history, they would have said something. It's a lot. Yeah. Yes. We ran his name through Alicourt to see if there were any court records. And we could find no further information on what happened with the 1982 robbery murder charges against Mixon. They do not show up. Now, it's possible that the record was sealed or maybe those charges were dropped if they realized, oh, wait, he was in jail at the time. He couldn't have done it. Um, Or they didn't have enough evidence to say that he did. Or whatever, you know, I guess they could have just dropped it all together and then maybe it wouldn't be in the record. But there are other charges. In the Allen Court records, it shows a 1977 charge, which is all weird, right? Because there's no mention in the newspaper of this 77 charge. It says 76, but there's no 76 charge on Allen Court. There's a 1979 charge. And there's three 1980 charges, but no 1982 charge. This is all just so bizarre. We also ran James Arthur Gregg's name since he was originally accused of forging the bill of sale for Pete's car. Those charges did show up in court records, but there was nothing indicated that he received any later charges related to Pete's murder. To our knowledge and Martha's, there's been no additional arrests made in connection to Pete's disappearance and subsequent death. After the arrest of Mixon in 82, it seems like that was the end of the investigation. And there's nothing in the newspapers that say 
They moved forward on those charges. They dismissed those charges. He went to trial. Nothing showing up nothing in the court in the records. Court records. No. If you look at his criminal mm-hmm. record, he does have a history of theft of property, mm-hmm. buying and receiving stolen property. There's some drug history here. So totally plausible that he could have. It wouldn't. You know, try to take the car from Pete or whatever, in some sort of situation where I don't know. But. It just seems unlikely that they would have referenced these charges knowing that in 1980 when they wrote that article that Pete was still missing and that if he had been considered a suspect in his disappearance, why wouldn't they have said, oh, one of these charges stemmed from that car that Pete Fikes was driving and Pete has never been found. It just seems like he probably wasn't in the original three, but who was? Right. And why didn't why didn't they have any murder charges? And it, then it just makes you wonder, what are the chances that that's actually Pete's skull that was found at that Sipsy dump site? Yeah, that's the real question, honestly. I mean, it's we know that they say that they matched the fracture. I'm curious if that's accurate. The blood piece, I have a hard time believing. Yeah, and there's... Just reading through this and looking at it, it's almost like sometimes the more you read something, the more sense it makes. That's not what's happening here. Mm-mm. Yeah. It's almost the opposite. It seems like the more we read it, the more questions we have. And that's exactly how Martha feels. I can imagine. And she was only you know, three or four at the yeah. time. So even harder because she can't, you know, she can't ask the people that were there that under, that knew about it. Hmm. Well, it definitely seems like we've got a pretty big mystery that goes back a really long way in Walker County, I'll add. I'll leave that thought for everyone to just think about on their own. But still digging. You know, like always, we promise we'll bring updates. We want to see, you know, if we can find any more records or... Um, any further information, even on like ancestry, I've been combing ancestry a little bit. I haven't finished doing that. I've even tried different variations of the names on the newspaper databases. And I'm going to keep doing that too, to see if Mm -hmm. maybe there was a misspelling in the name. One thing I did notice when we were searching through the databases is there was what seemed to be a kind of big case, um, for a William Earl Fikes around the same time. And that was in a lot of newspapers. So that hit a lot hmm. when we were searching his name. So I tried to be very careful when we were digging through and make sure that I didn't accidentally look over something because it was in with this other trial that was going on. And I don't think I did. I mean, we've went through newspapers.com, newspaper archives, newsbank, newspaper source, right. whatever, you know. Yep. And one of the things that we get to say once more in this, and I guess this is the case with a lot of these older cold cases, is that Martha's mother also has since passed, and she would have had some of that information as far as what, you know, they were talking about at the time and what the police told her and that sort of thing. Um, I don't know if they were together at the time it happened or not, but, you know, you would think that she would probably still know that. 
but unfortunately she's not here to help Martha with all of those questions she probably has. But hopefully we can give them some background and answers eventually with some of our research. As a call to action, you as our listeners, we need your help. Um, we're going to continue to do what we're doing, but we also would like to know, you know, if anybody out there has any of this information. If you have any connections to Pete, his job, his personal life, any strange occurrences that happened in the time frame surrounding November 29th, 1976. Think about the holidays back then, because that was right around Thanksgiving mm-hmm. time and in going into December. Um, TV news stories that you might have seen or something you read in the newspaper that sparks, you know, a memory or just anything, um, even anything about maybe conservationists in the area, um, since he was a conservation officer. Um, that could be in the area of Pickens. It could still be related or even in Walker County. Um, I'm thinking of any drug or theft ring incidents that you may have heard about, rumors, that sort of thing. And especially, of course, anything about the 1972 Plymouth Valiant that, um, you know, if you saw anything out of place or a driver that was acting oddly that may have been in a car around that time, just any of those things, you know, just trying to spark a memory in anybody out there that could have been around in that time. If you have any information related to the disappearance and subsequent death of William Charles Pete Pikes, please contact the Alabama State Bureau of Investigation Crime Hotline at 800-392-8011. As always, for Pete or any Alabama missing or murdered cold cases, you can reach us here at Unforgotten through the ACCA at our website, alcoldcase.com, or through our social media pages. All links and contact information will be listed in the episode description. Since Alabama Cold Case Advocacy's creation, we have dedicated innumerable hours to researching and networking in an effort to provide the largest platform we can to the cases we share. We shoulder all associated expenses with Alabama Cold Case Advocacy out of our own pocket, including the subscription fees for researching and production of the Unforgotten podcast to provide a cost-free avenue for the victims' families of those cases. We hope you will join in our efforts to raise awareness of Alabama's missing and murdered and support these families who have been forced to carry the immeasurable loss of their loved ones and the fight for answers. If you appreciate our mission and you are inspired to make a donation, your extra support will enable the ACCA to continue our research, share the cold cases, and help those families know that they are also unforgotten. Unforgotten is an Alabama cold case advocacy podcast recorded in conjunction with Riverside FM, hosted and distributed by Anchor FM, available on your favorite podcast platform. Intro music for the show was created by Principles of Uncertainty, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Content and production is by Sellers and Stormy, artwork by Sellers. Credits for music, sound clips, special mentions, and any source referenced in our podcast can be found in each episode's description. We hope you will join us on all the major social media sites and continue to raise awareness of our Alabama cold cases. Until next time, thank you for listening to Unforgotten.